All right. Hey, everybody. Dr. Stein here from Straight Ahead Chiropractic. And I have a special friend, a family friend, another physician. Uh, this is Dr. Mary Ellen Eller. She is a medical doctor, psychiatrist, and I will in just one sec let her kind of give you the intro of what she does and what her specialty is. Um, here's the reason we're doing something like this, why we have partnered in doing this um, really this interview and this meeting that will probably end up turning into podcasts and, and more resources. And that is, if you have been to our office, this is probably, you might even be one of these people that has come into the office and has just experienced brokenness, shared some brokenness, has said things like, I don't even know why I'm sharing this with you. You've probably used up some of the Kleenex that we have in our office, uh, which we have it spread out all throughout the office because we believe that healing extends far beyond chiropractic. It extends far beyond medication. And healing, ultimately, we believe transformation and lives transform really start with the renewing of your mind. And so we want to speak into that space quite a bit more. A couple of little things about Mary Ellen. She's got two awesome young kids. Uh, we used to CrossFit together. Uh, she has done gymnastics for a long time. Frustrating thing is we're both really competitive. And she can probably still do more handstand push-ups than I can. And I know that she could, when she was nine months pregnant, do more handstand push-ups than I can, which that's just confession. We're talking mindset stuff. So we're just going to go ahead and air some stuff out. Her claim to fame with our kids is um, her banana bread. Our kids love her banana bread. Um, and they, they have even kind of identified her by the banana bread and when asking, are, are we going to see the lady that gives us banana bread? Um, so little fun fact, they, unfortunately her and Nick, her husband have moved to Tennessee. So we don't get to connect with them as much as we would like to. Um, but yeah, near and dear friends. So please welcome this, which I feel is going to be just a really, really impactful conversation that we just hope that it helps you a little bit. We hope it helps you a ton. Quite honestly, we're hoping and praying that it changes your life. So Mary Ellen, let's hear a little bit about you. I don't really have much to add about myself after that. I don't think I could do more handstand push-ups than you at nine months pregnant. I, think I, don't, you know did, I, I don't know if I can even do one now. Um, <laughs> but more specifically about why this project is so exciting to me. Um, currently, I work as an inpatient psychiatrist. So I get to see mental illness at the point where we've reached a crisis point. Um, you know, and once we're in crisis mode and we're in, in that space where um we've lost our sense of hope there's it's very frustrating for me as a as a psychiatrist because there's not a lot that i can do in that moment and as i went through my training i started noticing um the thing that i got most passionate about was educating people on the ability to prevent mental illness from getting to that point all of us struggle and all of us all of us are loaded to be able to have mental illness. We all have the genetics and we all have the susceptibilities, which also means we all have the capacity to be resilient and to find ways and to with, with skillful intention, find ways to prevent mental illness from, from impacting our life in a way that makes us unfunctional. Unfortunately, by the time I see patients, 
you know, at that point we're in crisis mode and there's, like I said, it, we've missed the opportunity to do prevention. And so being able to speak into that space, being able to speak to people who have the opportunity to prevent things from falling apart into crisis, that's become one of my biggest passions. Um, you mentioned being a gymnast. As, I, uh, as a competitive gymnast, I ended up getting injured and then I transitioned into coaching. And one of the things that drew me to psychiatry was that ability to, to be that coach to people in a different avenue, but to be there and provide guidance. Um, one, of my, <laughs> one of my most frustrating situations as a coach was knowing that there was, there was no amount of me being a good coach that gave you skills. If, if the gymnast wasn't willing to do the work, there was nothing that I could do to change their trajectory. But being able to have the skills and being able to guide someone that was truly motivated to do great things, being able to see them achieve things, there was nothing more motivating for me as a coach. And I found, I found in psychiatry that being able to be that person in people's life is super motivating. And that's the, that is the part of my job that I enjoy the most. That's awesome. So that, I think that segues pretty, pretty well into, I mean, one, we've had conversations, right? I mean, behind the scenes, as friends, as professionals, just even before we hit record on this, we talked for 15, 20 minutes. And you know the story, you know kind of the, the, the tribe that we have and the, the feel that we have in the, our office being far more than just chiropractic, right? And I don't want to minimize chiropractic. I love what I do and I love that avenue. But it really serves as this platform to connect with people, seeing a lot of moms and families and, and really dads too, where kiddos are stuck in you know, sensory processing disorders, they have oppositional defiance disorders, they have neurodevelopmental things, they're on the spectrum. And that, I mean, having kids alone, we have four, you have two, like having kids is just difficult. It's hard. I mean, it's, it's rewarding, it's, it's awesome, but it is like the hardest thing I think that adults can do, right? Yeah. The hardest adulting is parenting. Mm -hmm. And in that realm, a lot of the conversations we have is, I believe divinely, like we'll just say that divinely, people don't just randomly show up in the office. They come in sometimes on the, on the arm of a trusted friend. And sometimes they just are spending all night Googling, like, where do I go? What do I do? And they come into this office and the greatest common denominator that we all have, not just people that come into the office, not just the people that you treat, but all of us, the greatest common denominator, I think, is brokenness, but not everybody finds hope. Mm. Step into our office and they say things like, I mean, they have, they verbally vomit. And I kind of joke and say, if you've been to our office, maybe this is you. And if you haven't been to our office, maybe this will soon be you. But having, having that place where we want to have a space where it's okay to not be okay, where we're a safe, really a safe place. Now, how do you, where, where does that from a, from a neuropsych standpoint, like, where does that come from? Like, why at a chiropractic office? Not, why not somewhere else? Hang on, we're going to have a brief interruption here. Yes, buddy. You want to say hi to Mr. You want to say hi to Tim? Hi, guys. Hi. <laughs> All right. Anything else? 
Can you give me a couple minutes? Okay, thank you. They just went caving. That's so cool. And they brought me a gift from the caves. I'm very excited. Uh, I'm sorry though, I got distracted. You were mentioning um, what it is that allows people to, to be in that space. Yeah, so like, I, I mean, I, I kind of go to, and you've actually talked me off of this ledge, but there's been so many times where I'm like, I'm just a chiropractor. Like, why, why are people sharing this with me? I didn't, I mean, in, in the beginning, I love it and I know I'm called to it, but in the beginning, I ran from it because I, it scared me because I just thought, why are people sharing this with me? And so we talked about shame. We talked about judgment in the past. We've had that conversation. So just speak into that a little bit. And I love what you just described as how when people share, like the gut reaction, right, is to run, right? Like, ooh, this is uncomfortable. I don't want to have this conversation. And if that happens with you as a professional, right, you can imagine how much more intensely that happens in somebody's day-to-day -day life. In that, in that space where we know we're struggling and we have this emotion and we want somebody to share it with to tell us, like, this is normal, right? Like, you you don't need to carry this guilt, this shame. What you're experiencing is perfectly normal. When you have that opportunity to have that conversation with someone who is willing to hang in there with you and not run away, but to hear, when there's that sense of safety, it opens up the ability to have those conversations and to normalize the feeling. And for most of us, that's what we need. We need that opportunity to normalize what we're going through. And I feel like in our culture, we've built people up in a way that, that yeah, it's trendy to say, you know, it, it's okay to not be okay, right? But a lot of the time we don't believe it, right? And we get so many mixed messages about, oh yeah, sure, it's okay to not be okay, but don't actually talk about it. And make sure you don't post it on Instagram. We just wanna see the nice stuff. And so when you have that opportunity to finally let your guard down and share with another human like, hey, life sucks for me right now. This is hard. I don't have energy. I'm not the person I want to be. Being able to speak those words in the open changes the way we feel about ourselves. And I think that's why when people come into a space like your office and they feel that sense of safety, where they feel that the judgment level is low and you're not going to kick them to the curb as the moment they open their mouth and, and emote something, right? Suddenly it's that fresh space where there's safety and there's that ability to relate and to feel normal with not being okay. And that is powerful. I think that is one of the most healing human experiences that people can have is knowing I feel this thing and I'm not a crazy person because I have this feeling. This is in fact a normal thing that every human experiences. And knowing that changes everything. So there's this secondary phenomenon that happens when, when people do let their guard down. And I honestly think, and, and we talked about this, it's, like, it's almost sometimes like people are blindsided or sucker punched by hope, right? Where they feel that sense of safety. And as soon as that safety gives them enough security, it's just like emotional vomit all over the place. And at first, I didn't know how to deal with it, right? At first, I mean, a couple of years ago, I was just like, uh, like I said, I tried to run from it. And now I've just recognized, like, this is part of the call. Like, I need to press into this space. It's not chiropractic by necessarily, but we also believe that 
every interaction influences every other interaction and every influence of one cell in the body influences every cell in the body and we don't compartmentalize things. And so the secondary phenomenon is once that emotional vomit happens, it's really quick apology. I'm sorry, sorry, I'm sorry. As soon as the tears flow, an I'm sorry comes out. What is that? So like we talked about, right? Being, being emotional, there, there comes with, as a society, we fed so much shame into that experience of emotion, right? So that risk of burdening somebody with that emotion, right? The gut reaction is, I'm so sorry. I should never have let that happen. I'm sorry, I let you see in this window and let me close the shades up again, right? Because what, what's behind that is scary to us, right? But also there's that risk of judgment and we don't want to, the mindset is I don't want to burden you with my problems and I'm sorry for, I'm sorry for making you do that, right? And you think about how that normally plays out, right? I share my feeling, the person runs away. I'm left feeling guilt and shame over the fact that the burden that I tried to share with them was so heavy that they had to run. And that mindset is so ingrained in us that it, it becomes automatic. The amount of things that we apologize for is astounding. If you sit back and listen to language, right? <laughs> you, you, <laughs> We've just discovered that the door in the office has a curtain and uh, now is the right time to play with it. So if you hear a, uh, a clicking noise, that would be Mr. Byron playing with the window shades, but we're just going to let him do it. I don't think it's worth the battle right now, <laughs> but uh, so I'm going to try not to be too distracted by that. Um, once we have that ability to emote, right. And we're able to share that, and we're able to accept, hang on one second. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm now thoroughly distracted. I have lost my train of thought. So you're just saying once we have the ability to emote, right? Once we have that safe space to actually let some of it out. So part of this is the fear, right? So if you think about all the emotion that we've been holding back, and you, you open that dam up just a little bit, right? Part of the fear is if I let a little trickle come out, I don't know if I, can, if I can hold it back, right? And so part of that apology, part of that I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, is the person saying that to themselves. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm sorry for letting my guard down. I'm Really quick, I want to just push pause. Can you go back and like reframe that, re-say that? Because that's just, I think that's so powerful. I will try. Yeah. <laughs> Um, where am I starting from? Yeah, well, just the, the idea that some of them, some of the verbal apology, like if I'm apologizing to you, I'm really either not forgiving myself or I'm trying to forgive myself or I'm apologizing even internally. So a lot of times when, when we're hearing people saying those words, saying those, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, right? A lot of times the words that we speak out loud are the words that we're truly saying to ourselves. That saying, I'm sorry, maybe there's some apology that is actually directed towards you as far as burdening you with their emotion. But the other part, and probably the majority of that, is in I'm sorry to myself. I'm sorry for letting somebody see how broken I'm, I am. 
I'm sorry for outing myself. I'm sorry for letting down my guard. I'm sorry for letting somebody pass this wall. And that is where, when you're able to allow somebody to share that space with you, right? Allowing them to continue despite the I'm sorry, letting them know that it doesn't bother you and this is a safe place to share. A lot of time it's that sense of safety that allows people or draws people back time and time again. Because unfortunately that is not a space that we share with many humans. And a lot of times I feel like that is, that lack of space is what really, really fuels the mental illness that I see months down the road, right? As that emotion, that guilt, that shame, as that builds and we feel more and more trapped by our emotion, more and more unable to speak truth into those spaces, that's when we start to feel this deep sense of feeling stuck. And I think that the, the idea of stuck is such a good, it's just such a good analogy, right? I, in our conversation earlier off, off camera, I had said, um, I think I had said something in the realm of like simplicity, right? And you said sometimes, and, and I said something framed around the idea of something being stupid. And I said, that's really simplistic. And you said, sometimes the like simplest truth is the best truth or I forget exactly your, your wording, but I think that whole idea, if <clears throat> a lot of the cases that a lot of the conversations we're having, I mean, I don't know when people are going to watch this. They might watch it soon. They might watch it. They might stumble across it in the archives somewhere down the road. And we're in the midst of obviously crisis, right? I mean, there's, we're not going to get political and, and, and talk about all the ins and outs of the crisis. But I mean, we're, we're definitely in the, in the midst of a, a time with COVID and all the things that are going on where there's, there's just high stress levels. People are on edge on, I think, across the board. And I think that I, I said before that, you know, brokenness is the biggest common denominator, common denominator I think. And, and right now, those cracks in the surface are even wider than normal. And so when, when we talk into, into that space and we, and we look at, you know, what that brokenness looks like in, in the space of really moving forward with trying to have honest conversations and then holding back because it's like, well, I don't want to offend you. I don't want to be burdened to you. Like as mom specifically, and then maybe I can speak into dads on this too, like, what are, what are some tips, tricks, like where, where do people even start if they, if they recognize that this is something, which I know awareness is a big thing that you're going to say, probably, I can't read your mind, but you're probably going to talk about awareness. Um, where, like, where, where, what's the process? Because they're stuck and most people just want to get unstuck. Like, that's the whole point of, I think that's why you do what you do. That's why I do what I do is not just to get them unstuck, but really to get people beyond unstuck, beyond stuck, and then get to a place where they're actually thriving. But what's that first step? Where do you get traction? So I wish there was one really simple answer and there's not. Me too. Humans were designed for relationship. So mm -hmm. I don't think any of us can be truly successful at getting unstuck in isolation. As humans, we need that ability to feel that sense of normalcy, right? To know that what I'm going through is, is okay. 
right? It's okay to, to be angry at my kids sometimes. It's okay to throw up my hands and say, why did I have kids in the first place, right? Like those are normal human emotions and we don't talk about that stuff. Those feelings, right? That ability to connect and normalize, you cannot do that if you're stuck in a room by yourself all day. You can't do that as a single mom if you're stuck at home and you never leave the house, you never have a moment where you're not with your kids, right? That ability to have that conversation goes away. So part of this is finding, finding one human, finding your group of humans, finding some sense of support where you can have those conversations in a safe place. The last thing that moms need to hear is that they need to do more. That is absolutely the wrong answer to this. Truly, we need to be better at prioritizing things, right? Our, I'm gonna speak for myself here, but um, my mindset has been, I have to do everything. Right? I have to be the best mom, I have to be the best doctor, I have, I have to be everything for everybody, which leaves very, very little time for me to do anything for me. And I feel like as females, and maybe this is just humans in general, we are wired to give, right? I, and part of that is energizing, right? Some of us are fueled by the ability to give to other people and to be there to take care of people. And at the end of the day, if that is all you do, there is going to be a time where you hit your limit and you say, I don't know who I am without this, right? If, if I were to lose my job or if I were to lose my kid, like who am I without those things? Being able to find that space to know who you are despite all the things that you do is critical and that's where the awareness piece comes in right spending that time alone spending that time being able to reconnect with your purpose knowing who you are in the midst of the chaos that you control right whether that's being a mom whether that's work whatever that is right knowing who you are in that space and also if that space were not to exist you you still would and who would you be at that point? And there's tons of different avenues, tons of different practical things that we can do to try and find that if, if we don't know the answer to that right now. Um, so I guess the, the two big categories would fall into that self-awareness of who I am, what my meaning and my purpose is, and then also what that means in relation to other people and who I can be myself with and who I can share my struggles with. If we can find answers to those two issues, managing the rest of life becomes much more doable. So you mentioned this idea, which you already know this. I'm an, I'm an Enneagram three. You're an eight, I think, right? <clears throat> and um, I'm married to a three. So we are going to be successful <laughs> no matter yes. what. Um, and we, we fear, I am terrified. I'm paralyzed of failure. I mean, and some of that, I can see some of my up, upbringing. I have this constant conversation that I have to hold this thought captive where I catch myself frequently saying, you're not good enough. I told you it wasn't going to be good enough. It wasn't good enough. And I have to speak truth over that and deny it. And one of a powerful thing you have said before, and I've heard on multiple different platforms is um, a couple of things. One is that you don't have to believe every thought that you have because we are, nobody lies to us more than we lie to ourselves. Yep. 
And then the other thing too, is what you mentioned is in this world of you, you spoke into the space of moms wanting to, you know, wanting the best for everyone else. And I would say, I would say dads by and large want that too. And I think that one thing that we miss out on is, and moms probably miss out on it more. And I can speak on behalf of Sandy because I see she does this too, um, which is like a curse and a huge blessing. I mean, we're hugely blessed by it, but it, it wears on her is that if you're going to give your best, it requires you to be your best. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it, and that's, that's where I think that fatigue and that burnout comes is like, if you're pouring out all day long, but not anything being refueled and re- refilled, then eventually you're going to run out of steam. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I love that phrase, be your best. Right, it's a great tagline. Makes us feel all warm and fuzzy. But like, what what does that even mean? Right, right? be your best. And our brains instantly go to, be my best. Okay, I'm gonna be my best mom. I'm gonna be the best student. I'm gonna be, you know, all these things. Right. And it shifts, it shifts the mindset from who I am to what I do. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we need to be able to move the conversation back to who I am. Right. Because if I can be, and here comes another tagline, if I can be my best me, right, it allows me to have something to give to other people. And it's, I mean, they're two terrible and catchy little taglines, but shifting from, from what I do to who I am changes the mindset significantly. The other thing you mentioned was paying attention and bringing that awareness to our thoughts. Um, And this is one of my favorite pieces when we talk about the preventative side of mental illness, being able to call this this particular issue into awareness. Um, A lot of this stems from different, uh, really two main therapy models. One, the main one being cognitive behavioral therapy and the other one being APT um, or uh, commitment therapy. Um, Basically, the tenets of this is that we have little to no control over our feelings, right? Feelings just pop up, they happen. Because of that, we can't really judge ourselves over what we feel because we don't really get to control what it is that we feel, right? Once we have the feeling, usually there's a thought, right, that comes along with it. And those thoughts happen so automatically and are so ingrained that when we start to pay attention to the thought that's fueling the emotion, we usually end up finding some pretty big patterns in our thought processes. There's way too much information in this world for us to judge every single bit of information our brain processes individually. So our brain has learned these structures to filter all the information through. And sometimes those are super helpful, right? And sometimes because of life experience, because of the way people have spoken into our lives or just the way that we're genetically wired, right? we develop these filters that can be super unhealthy. Um, so finding ways to, to draw our awareness to the thought, right, allows us to start to question, am I filtering this information through something that is realistic? Or maybe this is just a pattern that I've become accustomed to that up until now I've accepted without question, right? Um, in therapy, there's a lot of different ways that we, we go about trying to find and pulling out these patterns. Um, I'll give you an example for, of myself, one that surprised me, right? We we're um, in the process of learning therapy. We we're 
reading through these, um, these dialogues. Um, basically, it's like a story prompt and you're supposed to write down the first thought that comes to your mind after you hear the story. And the one for me was, um, you go to the store and you see this really nice thing, maybe it's a car, it's something expensive that you had to save your money for, right? And you finally save up all the money and you go to the store to buy this super expensive thing and it's not there. My gut reaction was, I didn't deserve it in the first place. And I wrote it down. I was like, are you kidding me? Like the moment I sat there and I looked at it, I said, that, that doesn't make a ton of sense. And then my mind started, oh, you could call around. Like I started... <laughs> I started coming up with all these other ideas. And then as I stepped back and I looked at that gut reaction of, you worked really hard for something, you didn't get the result you wanted, you didn't deserve it in the first place. When I looked back over my life, like that was a thought that has been very present on an unconscious level for a really long time. Part of it was healthy. It fueled me to do really well in school, fueled me to be a good gymnast, fueled me to work really hard at things. And it also made me incredibly critical on myself anytime something wasn't perfect, right? Because if it wasn't perfect, the problem was me. The more we pay attention to those patterns, the more we can start to look at and evaluate those filters that, were, that are built into our mind, right? And they are there and they have been built over your entire lifetime. The more attention we can pull to those thoughts, the more we can start to evaluate that. And as we evaluate those thoughts, right? As I start to shift from the mindset of when things fail, I didn't deserve to be successful, right? If I can step back and I can reevaluate that, when things go badly, I don't have to hate myself when things fail. I can learn from my mistakes, I can move on, but it's not like my whole ego just has to crumble and fall apart at that point, right? I can be more objective. That's the beauty of of learning to be more engaged when it comes to those thoughts, being more attentive to them and really starting to question them. Once we do that, right, then we can start to shift the way that we feel and we can start to shift our motivation and we usually find ourselves in a much more balanced and a much more healthy place. So when it, when it comes to holding those thoughts captive and really just questioning our thoughts and even retracing some of it and going, well, where did that even come from in the first place? Where did that maybe even originate? Oftentimes it's something that we've heard. It's something that somebody has said to us either in passing or it's something they've repeated to us and we've picked up and we've tweaked in our own heads, in our own minds. And then in the, in the realm of parenting, the whole idea of like mom, mom shame or parenting shame and that idea of comparison where we try speaking on best like we're trying to do our best right mm -hmm. most of us that are good logical human beings are making efforts to do our best and we may not know in some spaces what that looks like or what best is but at the same time we're never going to be good enough for other people because they don't care if we do our best. They want us to do their best, mm -hmm. right? They want us not to live up to expectations that we have for our family, but they want us to live up to expectations. So we got to, we got to wrap this up in a few minutes, but like in the, in the realm of these moms and families being kind of stuck in 
stuck in the cycle of stress, shame, in the midst of they just feel locked up in their house because their kids haven't gone to school in like 18 years or whatever. Um, and and they, they and not only that, but like the outlets are closed, right? I mean, the places to go, some of the parks are shut down and they don't even feel like they can even go in their front yard without the neighbor yelling something at them, like get back in your house. And even though that's not real and that, that's not the norm, right. but that fear and that fear escalates. And I even shared with you that in the last couple of months, I've experienced this anxiety that's, you probably hear it in my throat where I have this hoarseness because I've developed some reflux and I haven't been one in the past to really battle anxiety, but I just feel the tension of culture and society. So what are, um, before we end this, which is probably going to launch into a whole bunch of more conversations between you and I that we will go public with, what, um, what are just a few tips and tricks that some mindfulness stuff, what are some things so that stuck, I know that there's no quick fix, right? But what are some things to really just, maybe what's a step to overcome shame What's a step to break free from that whole like per perfectionism thing? Like I, the, the cliche, done beats perfect, right? Like <laughs> I forget your quote you said to me a couple of months ago, but you said something to the effect of anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Yeah, I hate that quote. And I have to tell myself it all the time because I get so paralyzed that I don't want to do anything right, until I know it's going to be perfect. So how do you just do it without just doing it? I'm a work in progress on that one. Um, but a lot of times, so we can't solve a problem if we don't know what the problem is, right? So that's where this idea of mindfulness or awareness can be really, really helpful. Um, mindfulness itself is a practice. Um, I will not claim to be an expert in the practice of mindfulness by any means. Um, the first time I had to do a mindfulness exercise, I had my first legit panic attack. Like it was so, it was so uncomfortable for me to be that introspective that it, like my body freaked out. My heart was racing. I started sweating. I started getting tunnel vision. Like it was, oh, it was terrible. Um, and so I had to, and that was in a group setting. Um, what I learned is, oh, what I learned for myself is being alone, spending those moments with my thoughts and doing it in super small increments at a time over time has become really, really helpful for me. Um, getting comfortable with not being good at something, oof, I don't it's like a hard you, space to be in. I don't like where you're going with that. <laughs> mindfulness is, so mindfulness is one of the hardest things that I have ever done, is it literally encourages you to just exist and do nothing, which goes against every fiber of my being. I want to do things. And so just having to sit there and just watch my thoughts float by and do nothing about them. And when a to-do list pops up in my brain, try to push it aside for a minute, like that just, it feels painful to me. But as I started to do this more, right? And I got to a point where I can sit and I can be mindful and I cannot do it for more than five minutes. <laughs> that is my personal limit. And that is after Oh, that is after years of practice. My blood pressure has come down significantly because of it. Um, and if I practice mindfulness before I go to a doctor's appointment, my blood pressure, I used to have what I just claimed to be like terrible white coat syndrome, which might be true. Um, the truth is probably that I have high blood pressure and I just live with an elevated sympathetic tone all the time. 
<laughs> so finding ways to intentionally activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which is what mindfulness and breathing practices, that's the whole goal of doing those. That brings your body into a state of relaxation where you can be more introspective. Um, so practically mindfulness, I tell you that long story to say, if you try mindfulness and it feels like a complete utter waste of your time and it feels uncomfortable and terrible, that's fine. Um, I learned personally, that's a normal experience and mindfulness is hard. And if you invest some time and focus on mindfulness, it truly does have some really long lasting, long-term and health benefits to doing it. Um, and there's a bunch of different ideas as far as um, specific practices that you can use to help guide yourself in, in the practice of mindfulness. Um, and those are like super easy to Google. Um, my favorite is basically to imagine yourself sitting on a river, um, just sitting on the bank of a river. And as your thoughts come up, you put them on a leaf and they just go floating down the river and you just watch your, your thought in the form of that leaf float down the river and then it floats away. And then a new leaf comes and a new thought. And your, your goal is literally just to sit there and watch the thoughts float down the river and just to be okay with that. And as your mind drifts away, that's fine. You just do your best to bring yourself back to that river and you watch those leaves keep floating. Um, that personally has worked best for me, but I love sitting by rivers. Um, so people have to find whatever works for them. Um, what was that? What about journaling? Journaling, I was, that was going to be the next recommendation. Um, for people who are much more practical, who like, you know, physically doing something or doing something more tangible, journaling can be incredibly helpful. Um, I personally like journal prompts um, instead of just pulling up a blank sheet of paper and writing whatever comes to mind. What I found is that journaling with intention seems to carry much more benefit. Um, so journaling with intention can include, most of them follow like a three prompt format as far as what did I do well today? What do I want to do better tomorrow? What's my goal for you know, tomorrow or something like that if you're journaling in the evening. Um, obviously that would change a little bit if you're doing it in the morning. Um, anything that increases your sense of connection to purpose will have long lasting results when it comes to combating shame and guilt. Journaling can be really helpful with that. Um, mindfulness is good. Any, any intentional awareness to your thoughts is also super helpful. So um, mindfulness is a way of doing that. Um, in cognitive behavioral therapy, um, there's some really good resources to start what's called like a thought log or a mood log. Um, that's a very practical thing that people can do if they want something more tangible, tangible to work on as far as bringing their thoughts into awareness. Um, and doing more is not always better. <laughs> So if the thought of doing those things is just overwhelming, then now is not the right time. Now we need to focus on prioritizing and just maybe carving out 15 minutes a day for doing self-care, right? And as we start prioritizing taking care of ourselves, then once we have that built into our schedule, then we can look at maybe finding some more specific things to make sure we're optimizing that time as much as possible. It goes back to that, um, that idea of being perfect. Right. So 
it's not a matter of necessarily, I, and I appreciate all the tips and tricks and the tools, and I know you have like a whole library of, of resources that we can share and give to people, but it just go, it really boils down to like, just do something, right? I mean, not, not add more to your daily routine, but maybe can you carve out, like can you, can you shave off a little bit of time and really just allocate time or prioritize things a little bit differently so that maybe you start with, um, maybe you start with one, writing one sentence in a journal, right? And then one sentence turns into two, or maybe you write the same sentence every day for a week and you just process through that. But it's a, it's a matter of really getting momentum because you can't steer a parked car, right? I mean, that's paralysis by analysis. You suffer from it. I suffer from it. And that whole idea of just do something and then correct the course along the way. And that, I think that's a, that's a hard, it's a hard, small first step, right? I mean, it really is a simple little, if you lean forward enough, you're going to naturally step because you're not going to fall. You don't want to fall on your face. And I think that's really what some something that you know I would suggest, and I think you would fall in line with that is just lean in a little bit so you get a little off balance, which then will force you to take that next step. Both being athletes, I I love athlete analogies, right? No one in their right mind would say, I'm gonna go out and run a marathon today if they haven't trained for it. When we talk about doing these things, the perfectionist brain says, I'm gonna do this perfect, I'm gonna do all the things, I'm gonna do it so well, and I'm gonna start tomorrow, right? When it comes to self-awareness, when it comes to the process of self-improvement, there is no waking up in the morning and running a marathon. Even if you, even if you make it 12 miles into that marathon, right? You're gonna burn out. Right. Anything that you can do to start training, and that's what, we have, that's what we have to keep in mind, is when it comes to improving myself, I did not get where I am overnight getting to where I want to be is also not going to happen overnight. And if I prioritize self-improvement, if I if I prioritize self-awareness and prioritize the journey of getting to where I want to be, then it's those little steps. It's that leaning in that goes a long way over the next year, five years, 10 years, 15 years. And slowly you look around and you realize I'm much closer to being who I want to be than I was, you know, yesterday or a year ago or 10 years ago. It's, it's that growth over goals mindset, right? I mean, it's, it's having that idea of, yes, goals are good and we all should, you know, fuzzy targets never get hit. So we all should have something in the crosshairs, but, but at the same time, if, if all we do is focus in on these goals, well, then that doesn't help our perfectionism because when we hit those goals, we just are left wanting more. Mm -hmm. right? And so the idea, and I think this is probably a good place for us to pause and pick up a conversation down, you know, in the near future is with that idea of really thinking about, can you grow? Not necessarily, can you be the best version of yourself possible? Um, because in that analogy of training for a marathon, not only are you going to do it great and well and start tomorrow, you're also planning on finishing tomorrow. Right. Because you don't really intend to ever do the process. And, and I think that part of it is now that our kids are a little bit older, being, you know, three and almost a fourth one, a teenager and a couple of them driving, 
we're, we're looking back and, you know, Sandy and I are having conversations. If we could speak to the younger versions of ourselves, we would just say, slow down a little bit and stop taking yourself so seriously. Stop being so uptight. Just enjoy the process. Our kids are five and a half years apart from beginning to end. That's like Sandy being pregnant for six years straight <laughs> and like in diapers for that long. And, you know, I mean, it was a whirlwind, but now looking back and I know I sound like the, the proverbial old man that's like, just enjoy the time that you have because it goes so fast. And I'm not going to say that, but I will say that if we can have that mindset of life to look at things as more of a path and a process than a destination that we're trying to get to. Right. Because I think so often we focus on this destination and you're like, if I could just get there, but you and I have both been there and most people have been there. And then we've got there and we're like, this isn't as cool as I thought it was going to be. Now what's next, especially for an Enneagram three, I get there and I'm like, I didn't get here fast enough. So now I need to go somewhere better. What, what is next? Yeah. And there's, it's so hard to just sit back and, and like you said, enjoy the journey, enjoy the process, especially when our minds are so goal oriented and we're you know, built in perfectionists and built in achievers, being able to sit and enjoy the slow process is painful. Yes. And that's okay. And, and worth it. Worth the pain. Right. Cool. Well, hey, Dr. Eller, thank you so much. Um, I know that our tribe locally and probably beyond our tribe locally is going to find immense value in this conversation and in whatever future conversations we have, because I think that this is a space that we, when I first pitched this idea to you, quite honestly, I was hoping you would shoot it down and be like, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> and like, see, she's a psychiatrist and she said I shouldn't do this. And so She's one of the smartest doctors I know. Um, and even though she says she's not, she is. And um, in, in that whole world, moving toward this, I, I think that there's a lot of value that can be had in seeing some of the subclinical cases. Because a lot of the cases that we're talking about, a lot of the conversations that we have and a lot of people that we see, they may not need intensive intervention, right? right? They're, they're not the people that you're seeing in your clinic where there's a totally different protocol than the people that are walking into my office. Um, and it's a lot of people in this space that you had shared, you don't really have a lot of contact with from a professional standpoint because they're not, these aren't the people that are reaching out to you. Right. Um, and so we wanna make sure that those people, um, which is really, I think all humans, are looking more towards mental health in, 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 in that very thing not waiting for it to be mental illness, right, or mental disease, but actually going, hey, we can call it mental health and practice it without being crazy. And I don't mean that too loosely, but I mean, we don't have to lose our minds before we start pursuing mental health. Right. And, and we should pursue mental health so that we don't lose our minds. Yeah. I mean, we all have brains and we all have lives, which means we all have the capacity to feel good and we all have the capacity to feel bad. Mm whatever we can do in the realm of prevention, right? Once mental illness sets in, like I said earlier, there's not a ton that we can do. And if we can prevent things from happening in the first place, right? If we can change those thought patterns earlier on in life, 
right? Maybe, maybe even if we don't, you never end up having to see me on an inpatient unit, which is great, right? And our lives can be so much more full and so much more meaningful if we invest the time to pay attention to our brains and to pay attention to our thoughts. We don't have a life without them. Mm. So we need them to be working for us and not against us. And that's where prevention can be incredibly impactful. That's huge. I think that right there is probably the, the, the pause button because I think that just people need to marinate in that for a little bit. They just need to soak that in and just have that thought process of, I mean, without, without our thought patterns and without our thought processes and, and, and I mean, there would be no life without thought process and thought patterns and really the joy and the hope that we find amidst this brokenness, which we can't escape largely hinders on how we go about our day to day based on the thoughts that we have, the truths that we believe and the lies that we reject. And so with that said, um, you already know how much I appreciate you. Um, our whole family appreciates you, not just for the banana, kid, but um, we just appreciate you and Nick and the kiddos. And so I thank you for this. Um, on behalf of the people that are going to watch this and listen to this, I thank you on behalf of them as well. Um, really appreciate you. Thanks for everything. Thank you so much. I'm going to see if I have bananas. She was inspired <laughs> me to make some banana bread. <laughs> nice. Awesome. Cool. We'll talk soon. Awesome.